everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, if you follow the news closely, that you know sitting US President Joe Biden just quickly wrap up his trips in Asia. Now, during the journey, not only that he encountered newly elected leaders in two or many most strategic and close allies, but meanwhile, he addressed so many issues regarding this political policy, not only in Asia, but also across the continent. But meanwhile, this year is also crucial for one country as well, which is New Zealand. I guess we have not heard so much in terms of foreign policy or this ongoing relationship between US and New Zealand at this moment. Well, needless to say, we are living in this small world since all the leaders are speaking and meeting each other virtually. So that's why today in this episode, it's crucial that we examine how we're supposed to understand and analyze this relationship politically or economically speaking between US and New Zealand. And how about China? How should New Zealand deal with the growing one of the largest economies in the world? Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, Mr. Jeffrey Miller. And Jeffrey Miller is the Democracy Project's international analyst and writes on current New Zealand foreign policy and related geopolitical issues. And he has lived in Germany and the Middle East and is a learner of Arabic and Russian. Without further ado, Mr. Miller, a welcome to The Missing Piece. Hi there, Will. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be with you. Well, Mr. Miller, the pleasure is all mine. Now, let's get to the question right away. Again, as I mentioned before, the sitting U.S. President Joe Biden quickly wrap up his Asia trip. And again, not only that he talk a lot more strategic uh, uh, plannings and also this economic partnership with countries in Asia, but meanwhile, he touched on not just a single bit, but extensively regarding the U.S policy, especially the foreign policy. But meanwhile, recently, the leader in New Zealand were also invited to the US as well. I mean, again, keep in mind, this has been a while since the two leaders, one from US, one from New Zealand, actually met each other and addressing some of the critical issues. So Mr. Miller, from your perspective, how should we understand this ongoing relationship between New Zealand and US today, particularly in terms of this political and or economic engagement? Well, it's a, it's a great question there, Will. I, I, I think the New Zealand-US relationship is a fascinating one. It's, it's quite different to, say, the relationship of Australia with the United States. Uh, New Zealand is not an ally of the US. Mm. It used to be. Uh, but in the 1980s, New Zealand and the U.S. had a great falling out and uh, the U.S. suspended its obligations to New Zealand under the ANZUS uh, Treaty Alliance. So New Zealand was a treaty partner. ANZUS uh, was a three-way alliance between the United States, Australia and New Zealand, uh, very similar to NATO in mm. the North Atlantic. Uh, and uh, there was a big dispute over nuclear powered ships. New Zealand declared itself a nuclear free zone uh, in the 1980s, uh, in 1984. Uh, that was the policy of the Labour government that came in at the time. And the US was not happy with this. And uh, they sought to test that policy and said, we want to bring a nuclear ship to New Zealand, mm. a nuclear powered ship, I should say. Uh, and New Zealand refused. 
So uh, they cut New Zealand off at that point. So from, in 1986, uh, the United States formally suspended all its obligations to New Zealand under the ANZUS Treaty. And that was actually quite useful for New Zealand, as it turned out, because the Cold War ended not that long afterwards. Mm. And uh, New Zealand became a free agent and went around the world uh, signing up uh, trade deals and um, finding its own way in the world with a bit of more flexibility than, than the likes of Australia had. Um, and New Zealand built a very strong relationship with, with China as well. Um, and this all worked quite well. New Zealand slowly rebuilt its relationship with the US over successive presidents, uh, under, particularly under President Bush and uh, then President Obama. Um, New Zealand was a strong supporter of the US in its war in Afghanistan, mm. and the US greatly appreciated that, and that was the beginnings of the thaw. And then certainly by the time you got to Obama, it was all a bit old. I mean, the dispute of the 1980s, Obama didn't really care too much about that. He just mm. saw um, New Zealand was quite a nice country, and um, why shouldn't we get along and forget about the, the troubles of the past? So... Um, the US and New Zealand signed a declaration in 2010 called the Wellington Declaration, and that was effectively drew a, drew a line under all the problems of the past. And from that point onwards, the relationship has warmed, but still with some distance. Uh, New Zealand still is not a formal ally um, of the US. Um, and then in the last you know, few years in particular, of course, this China issue has really loomed large. Mm. And... The US, of course, has its views on China, which are a little more hawkish than New Zealand's views. Uh, Australia and the US are quite well aligned with, with their views on China. Um, New Zealand has take, tends to take a different position. You know, one third of New Zealand's exports, 33% of New Zealand's exports, go to China. So mm -hmm. New Zealand is heavily dependent on the China market, uh, particularly agricultural products. We're talking meat and milk powder, uh, effectively. Uh, New Zealand sells huge amounts of, of those primary products mm. to China, wood uh, as well, um, you know, all kinds of primary products that China needs for, um, uh, yeah, for its in industry to, uh, and its consumer goods as well. Um, so... This is the this is the you know the general picture. Um, New Zealand is relatively happy with with trading with China. I mean, it's not aware of the difficulties, mm. um, but the US con is at the moment constantly wanting to put New Zealand in its corner along with other Western countries. And New Zealand has moved closer towards the US, um, particularly over the last year. Um, and Ukraine is part of that in the last uh, few months. New mm. Zealand uh, has supported the West on Ukraine. And uh, you know, the US is, is really wanting New Zealand to support it a bit more strongly uh, when it comes to uh, its policy on China as well. And uh, just to be a bit more hawkish. So Joe Biden and Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, they issued a joint statement today, 3,000 words. It was a long statement, mm. uh, 10 times the length of the Wellington Declaration that was signed in 2010. Uh, that was a 300-word declaration. This was 3,000 words. <laughs> and it feels now, well, that New Zealand and the US are almost allies in all but name in some mm. ways. Uh, and there's something 
quite remarkable uh, that we've got to this point. Um, and it's something that New Zealand really needs to be quite aware of because uh, it is so reliant on trade with China mm. and uh, it can't really afford to get offside with China. So uh, I, I, it will be really interesting to see what happens uh, going forward. Um, New Zealand is not in one of these alliances like the Quad, mm. um, for example, along with Australia, but I can definitely see New Zealand being pushed in that direction. Mm. Um, it was mentioned in the joint statement, the Quad, and I wouldn't be surprised if New Zealand is pushed towards a sort of Quad plus arrangement. That certainly seems to be the direction of travel. Um, New Zealand is signing up to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, this new agreement, the IPEF, mm. um, and I just think this is an incremental, um, uh, yeah, there's an incremental uh, approach uh, here in, in play and New Zealand is just gradually uh, getting closer and closer to the United States politically. Mm. You know, Jeffrey, I want to refer to something that you wrote uh, from this, uh, uh, on this uh, recent article. And again, you quoted that the words from the current prime minister and you believe or you said that the current Prime Minister of New Zealand said, and I quote, held firmly to our independent foreign policy, but also to mm. our values. When we see a threat to the rules-based order and we rely on, we act. Now, Jeffrey, let me remind you something. And again, I'm sure you know that today, if we say that in terms of the foreign policy, no country is actually today it's playing, playing by the rules. So in other words, we're living or we are experiencing this globalization. Abiding rules seem to be very traditional. But today, if we look at this geopolitical change, rules are meant to be broken. So going back to the words from this prime minister of New Zealand, that when we see a threat to the rule-based order we rely on, we act. How should we understand the words of Jacinda. So in other words, when she sees this war in Ukraine right now, and when she uh. sees this economic unfairness from China, when she sees that this territorial dispute uh, uh, in, in, in the Middle East, how should we understand this, what we called, or what she called, rules-based order? Yeah, I, I think rules-based order, uh, it comes up a lot these days, um, and uh, particularly within with the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and you know, it's something that's stressed very heavily um, by Western policymakers at mm. the moment, uh, the rules-based international order. And I take that really as saying it's a precedent. And I think it's a way, particularly in New Zealand's case, uh, it's a way of explaining why should New Zealand get involved and a war between Russia and Ukraine, which mm. two countries which we don't actually have a lot to do with. And mm. New Zealand's trade position is very minimal with those countries. Our relations with those countries are fairly minimal. So why are we getting involved in a foreign war? Um, it's because of the precedent it sets. And there are some, you know, you know there are some really interesting, important principles at stake. Uh, I, I don't disagree entirely um, with that. I, I just think, yeah, it, it New Zealand now has set the precedent of um, backing the West. Uh, we uh, introduced sanctions. That was a big step for New Zealand to actually introduce sanctions. We didn't have an autonomous independent sanctions regime uh, before March. Mm. We do now, uh, only with reference to Russia uh, at the moment. Uh, there's a, a dedicated Russia Sanctions Act that was introduced into Parliament. But that certainly could be a blueprint 
uh, and uh, a precedent for introducing sanctions against other countries. New Zealand's previous approach was multilateralism only, mm. and we would only introduce sanctions through UN mechanisms. Now, of course, there are problems with that because you know, under the UN Security Council, any one of those permanent five countries can, can block sanctions. So there was a level of, um, yeah, it was it was convenient for New Zealand in some in some ways, because we could say, oh, we will always support sanctions if they're supported by the UN. But, of course, that dodged uh, a lot of sanctions issues. Uh, but we can't do that dodging now because we've we've crossed that line. So New Zealand crossed the line. We've introduced sanctions. Uh, we've sent weapons to Ukraine, which was a huge step. We've mm-hmm. sent, lethal, yeah, we're sending lethal aid now to to Ukraine, like Australia, like the US, like the EU, and like other Western countries. Um, but up until the war with Ukraine, New Zealand had tried to keep a bit more distance from other Western partners. Basically, New Zealand's strategy since the end of the Cold War had been to try and get on well with everybody. Mm-hmm. So I call it the policy: keep calm and carry on selling milk powder. That was really um, New Zealand's foreign policy in many ways, was a trade-based foreign policy. And it and it's worked very well with globalisation. But uh, now we're going into a more ideological period, I feel. Uh, this sort of tension between East and West is rising. Um, this geopolitical polarisation uh, is really deepening. Uh, it started... Uh, this year with with Russia and Ukraine, but I think you've seen a lot of spillover to the Indo-Pacific and, uh, of course, uh, in relation to China. So um, we saw Joe Biden travelling to the Quad Summit in Japan. Mm. um, And, you know, New Zealand is coming under a lot of pressure, I think, from Western partners to sign up to the club. Um, And I, I think we have to view pretty much every development in this in this context. There's, there's one big global jigsaw puzzle at the moment, one big global geopolitical jigsaw puzzle. And, um, you know, New Zealand is under pressure to, uh, to you know, well, other countries, Western partners are putting pressure on New Zealand to, to get in line uh, mm. effectively at the moment. Well, Jeffrey, before we bring China back into the conversation, again, going back to the article... That we know that today, as we mentioned before, U.S. foreign policy or even domestic policies are facing obstacles one after another. Now, given this condition, you know, again, the sitting U.S. President Joe Biden, on one hand, this is a crucial year for the Democrats because, again, the midterm election is coming up. And uh, again, the Democrats are making greater effort to secure its position, but meanwhile want to push forward with the 2024 presidential election. You know, we can see uh, any path uh, ahead of us. But meanwhile, in terms of foreign policy, now keep in mind that Joe Biden has not, I guess some people might argue with me, has not done anything effectively to strengthen the relationship with regarding the allies or the friends and, you know, again, politically or economically. But now coming back to New Zealand, why should New Zealand today continue to place, let me be careful right here, some sorts of trust deposit or some sort of uh, a trust a trustworthy relationship into the US and given this condition US foreign policy today it's more debatable than ever or this foreign policy uh, networking it seems uh, m- making 
its ways slowly than ever. So in other words, what would a New Zealand get in return if this trust or this mutual relationship continued to proceed forward? Now, in addition, that China is on is as a, is a bench player at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, Will. And certainly today with this White House meeting between Jacinda Ardern and the New Zealand Prime Minister and, and President Joe Biden, uh, New Zealand media and Jacinda Ardern uh, are very keen to mention the CPTPP, or the Comprehensive mm. and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership Free Trade Agreement. This is a deal that New Zealand started, actually, going right back to 2005. New Zealand started a free trade agreement uh, between New Zealand, Singapore, uh, Brunei, and, and Chile. Mm. And that eventually became uh, the TPP. And the US was in that agreement. And this New Zealand was on the brink of getting a free trade agreement with the US, which New Zealand policymakers had long seen as a holy grail um, for our foreign policy. And it was something that we were never going to get otherwise. Uh, we were never going to get a bilateral free trade agreement because we weren't even a US ally because mm. of that dispute going back to the 1980s. Australia got a free trade agreement because they were a loyal US ally and supported the US and Iraq and, and everything else. New Zealand was quite clearly you know, at the very back of the queue. But um, through this multilateral deal, New Zealand was going to get a free trade deal with the US and everyone here was very happy about that. But then Donald Trump came in and killed it off mm. um, with, uh, you know, his, with his protectionist instincts back in the start of his presidency. He did come to regret that later on when he realised that uh, effectively um, it uh, you know, allowed China, um, yeah, kind of a, a, a Gave, gave China an advantage, the fact mm. that, that this deal had collapsed um, from the US side, at least. Um, but uh, but anyway, the, the CPTPP is mentioned by New Zealand a lot. Um, it's not going to happen because of the fact that it requires congressional approval and there's zero appetite for uh, the big, a big free trade deal at the moment with the midterms coming up. But just, I mean, on left and on the left and on the right, as far as I understand it. You would be more of an expert than I am being there at the US, but there's just very little appetite for a big free trade deal at the moment. Mm. So it doesn't matter how much Joe Biden wants it, and he, and he would. I mean, if it were up to Joe Biden, he would sign up to the CPTPP tomorrow because um, you know, it would help uh, the US counter China economically. They can't do that, so they're offering this IPEF instead, which isn't very impressive, uh, really. Um, it's, it's not a free trade agreement. Uh, I've seen it described as a free trade agreement without the free trade, uh, which I find quite amusing. Um, but yeah, the, the real question is, what does New Zealand get out of this um, relationship? I, I guess historically, culturally, New Zealand is part of the West. We're very... Uh, you know, New Zealanders have got a lot of strong memories about uh, cooperation with the US going back to World War II when uh, many US Marines were stationed in New Zealand, helped defend New Zealand from the Japanese. Uh, and Joe Biden mentioned this, you know, these historic bonds uh, in, in, in Washington today. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of these historical cultural ties in New Zealand even though New Zealand is very dependent on trade with China, attitudes to China are going negative now. Um, not nearly as bad as, as in other countries. I mean, if you look at 
uh, data from the Pew Research Centre for Australia, uh, for example, they've got uh, historic highs of negativity. I think it was sort of 80% mm, right. from, from memory um, in terms of attitudes that were negative towards China. And New Zealand is not nearly as bad. Um, when you look at survey data, uh, not from the pre-Pew Research Centre, unfortunately, because New Zealand is not included in that survey, but there's similar data from uh, a think tank here called the Asia New Zealand Foundation. And they're showing a similar trend if you look at figures from uh, the last survey. So, um, you know, New Zealanders are becoming more wary of China, like like uh, all over the Western world, really, at the moment, and more favourable to Western cooperation. Um, I think we need to think carefully about this. I mean, look, the US is not giving New Zealand really an alternative. Um, you know, we... You, know, you need an alternative if, if that's what you want. I mean, if you want to move away from China, you're going to need an alternative. Mm. Um, the US is not providing that. They don't allow most of New Zealand's products to be sold. Mm. Um, you know, the US is the third biggest trading partner, but a lot of New Zealand's biggest exports uh, are not really allowed into the US. They're agricultural exports the milk powder and, and these kinds of products, uh, they directly compete with U.S. farmers. So there are very high tariffs against a lot of what New Zealand sells. Um, so New Zealand just can't make its living uh, its way in the world at the moment uh, by selling to the U.S. It's a, it's a distant third, uh, I would say, as well. Um, it's nowhere near the 13% that the um, – that that, sorry, the 33% that uh, – goes to China, 33% of New Zealand exports go to China, 13%, one three goes to Australia, and then the US is in a distant third place with 11%. So New Zealand sells three times um, the goods and services to China that it sells to to the US. So mm. I think that trade thing tells the story in a lot of ways. Why does New Zealand not want to get too close to the West? Um, you know, in large part, it's because of that figure. And that I just put out just before... Uh, go back to you, um, that, that figure is much, much higher. That proportion mm. is much, much higher than the US itself or, say, the UK. Uh, I think you, the China, sorry, the US figure of trade with China or US exports that go to China, the percentage is only 8.8% mm. from memory. And for the UK, just as another example, the United Kingdom, they only sell 4.4% of their exports go to China. So New Zealand sells almost 10 times the proportion um, of its exports to China. And that's in large part a byproduct of the nature of New Zealand's economy, which is very heavily focused on primary products. So um, all of these things fit together. But I think if you want to understand New Zealand foreign policy, look at the trade picture and it tells you a lot, actually, just looking at the um, looking at those proportions. Well, Jeffrey, I want to go back to, again, the article that you wrote. Let's bring China into this conversation. I mean, you're right that this ongoing tension or this rivalry relationship between China and the U.S. has not gone anywhere. So in other words, again, going back to uh, my intro, that part of the reason for Joe Biden traveled to South Korea and traveled to Asia and met up with the leaders, you know, among the Quad members is to really to reinstate this coalition or this political or this economic uh, commitment uh, to other countries. But meanwhile, given what you just said, roughly around 33% that the New Zealand build this trade relationship with China. But now, now the next question is very simple. If 
New Zealand is heavily dependent on China. Why even bother to criticize China at this moment? So in other words, again, on one side, we know that China is not a rule player. I mean, uh, it's it's not really a, 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 how can I say, an actor who really follows the principles. But meanwhile, a New Zealand can't afford to lose this relationship or can't afford to uh, change or modify this relationship whatsoever. So why bother to play itself in the middle of the whole uh, a chaos between U.S. and China? Why not just stand on the side, continue to put or promote this business or this cultural relationship? Why bother even to uh, uh, share comments or negativity towards China? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, Will. I think New Zealand uh, did effectively try this strategy. Uh, if you go back to, uh, I think, the war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine, I know this is, is not actually China, but it, it's really related. Um, New Zealand really resisted at the start of the war back mm. in the end of February. New Zealand resisted in uh, implementing sanctions uh, for about three days, um, precisely because of the precedent that it would set. But there was enormous pressure on New Zealand uh, from the US, from the EU, um, from others uh, domestically as well. People could see what was happening with Ukraine and they demanded action. So in the end, the government caved in. Um, and that's been a bit of a turning point uh, this year. In terms of direct comments on China, Jacinda Ardern is very careful when she chooses her words. She prefers to talk about the Indo-Pacific and the tensions without even mentioning China, which is quite quite impressive, actually. Mm. Sometimes if you read um, remarks from Jacinda Ardern or listen to her, it's quite impressive how you can talk about China without actually mentioning China. So she talks about, you know, we live a con in the contested region. That's her favourite phrase. You know, we're in a contested region. Uh, there is more interest in the Pacific. So she tries to talk in these oblique terms, although I think that is changing as well. I've, I've heard her talk more about China in the last few days than certainly she's she's uh, preferred to do uh, in the past. And if you look at this joint statement, and I encourage your listeners and, and viewers to go and look at the joint statement that was mm. issued between Jacinda Ardern and Joe Biden, uh, there's a lot of about China in there, all details about Xinjiang and Hong Kong and human rights issues. Um, you know, there's mentioning of the Quad, which I, I kind of find a bit odd. I mean, New Zealand's not a member of the Quad. Um, why is this coming up in the joint statement? Uh, well, because it's important to the US and it's, it kind of feels like a statement that the US has written and that New Zealand has signed its name to, uh, you know, to be frank. So that kind of just tells you, I think, at the moment, the pressure that New Zealand is under. Um, and, you know, New Zealand, the, the pressure is on New Zealand to join the West at the moment. And because we're moving into this ideological period, it, it's very, very difficult for New Zealand to sit on the sidelines. You look at Sweden and Finland joining NATO, I mean, the, the, these countries in, have been neutral for decades, uh, uh, even hundreds of years, I think, in the ca country, case of Sweden. Um, so, you know, they can't they can't withstand the pressure. Um, uh, New Zealand is, is kind of in a similar position, uh, but in the Indo-Pacific. Um, New Zealand is being told now, effectively, choose a mm. side. Um, and New Zealand kind of says, oh, we don't really want to choose a side. We want to be friends with everyone. Um but uh, it's kind of the, the time is kind of running out on that strategy, I think. Or put it this way, New Zealand would have to have a, a lot more guts and stand up to the pressure. And I don't think Jacinda Ardern is that kind of person. Mm. I don't think the government is that kind of government here at the moment. 
um, I think there is an alternative approach that would probably be better for New Zealand, mm. and that is a more of a middle ground. Uh, look, we need engagement at the moment because uh, we don't want another war. Look, this war, Russia with war in Ukraine is brutal and horrible enough. We don't want a war in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but we're kind of heading that way, unfortunately. Mm. Um, each time you get you know, these constant, you get this constant escalation of tensions between East and West and uh, tit for tat. We've seen a lot of that in the last week or so between the US and China, um, you know, with the Chinese, Chinese foreign minister traveling in the Pacific with the Quad. On the other side, uh, there's just constant tit for tat signaling, uh, it feels. Uh, I kind of think, well, New Zealand could play that role in the middle where, it, you know, it's a small country, mm. gets on quite well with both sides. Um, you know, New Zealand is China's best friend in the West, um, you know, despite all the tensions we've talked about, um, New Zealand has got it, was the first country in uh, the West to get a free trade agreement with China back in 2008. And that's part of the story. That's why New Zealand's trade has done so well with China, um, is because New Zealand's established a really good relationship with, with Beijing. Mm. Um, so I think New Zealand has got some unique attributes. It gets on well. Jacinda Ardern can go to Washington, meet with Joe Biden. She can also go to Beijing. She had a good meeting with Xi Jinping there uh, before uh, the pandemic. Mm. Um, I think New Zealand still can credibly talk to both sides. But I think the window is gradually closing because New Zealand is, is constantly just inching towards the West at the moment. Mm. And I get that there's a lot of pressure um, from Washington, from London, uh, from Brussels, uh, from Canberra in Australia. And you've got to remember New Zealand is stuck here at the bottom of the world, but we're right next door to Australia, which is quite a giant uh, mm. for us um, in foreign policy terms. So if you think of Australia, New Zealand is kind of like the little brother and Australia is the big brother. And um, big brother is constantly saying you should support us and stand with us. And you know, New Zealand and Australia, New Zealanders and Australians get on very well with each other, culturally very, very similar. So there's, it's the fact that Australia is very hawkish on China is quite an influencing factor for New Zealanders. Mm. Um, they have, you know, they've got a very hawkish relationship at the moment and there's a lot of tension between Australia and China. And that's, I think, a lot of that's reflecting on New Zealand. Mm. But I, I think New Zealand needs to think very carefully of what is its own interests um, and not just do what it's told mm. uh, by Washington or by the Australia. I mean, if, if effectively this is what led to the problems back in the 1980s, was New Zealand being told what to do. Um, New Zealand broke free of that and was actually better for it, mm. for making its own decisions with this independent foreign policy. Um, and uh, I think we need to think very carefully about just rushing into uh, you know, the West's embrace, even though that might be quite convenient and quite mm. easy uh, to do um, and would make, might feel quite comforting if you're a small little country on its own, you know, being uh, in the embrace of the West and getting on well with Joe Biden might seem very comforting. But I, I think we need to think very carefully about what is New Zealand's interest here. You know, Jeffrey, I'm very glad that you mentioned, again, this is something actually you brought it up uh, uh, uniquely. It's let's talk about Finland and Sweden. They send in their applications to be part of the NATO. Again, I mean, going back to this ongoing war, more than four months later that we are still, I mean, again, as an international community, we're still witnessing this tr uh, very dramatic but unpredictable war in Ukraine.
But meanwhile, that sent a strong alarm to the countries such as Finland and Sweden. They filed their application to be part of the member in NATO. Now, Jeffrey, from your perspective, again, you're the expert on international security and also this international uh, geopolitical uh, changes. Number one. Why now that forced Finland and Sweden to join this NATO? And number two, is it only because the war in Ukraine uh, or is there any other security threat that they are afraid, not just from Russia, but anywhere else, so that really propel them or push them to join NATO? Well, uh, I think it's all about this uh this geopolitical polarization. Um, they've seen what's happened to Ukraine. They've seen Russia invading Ukraine and they're very scared. Uh, and I think you would be scared too if you were Finland or Sweden in mm. the position you are. Um, you know, both of these countries are very close to uh, to Russia, um, you know, and they're not part of NATO. Uh, you would kind of want to join at the moment. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're in those countries, I, I get completely why you'd want to join NATO right now because it, you know, provides you with an assurance that you're going to get defended um, if the worst came to pass at the moment. Um, so I think that really tells the story. Um, we're just seeing such fundamental change this year. Uh, I didn't think that Russia would invade Ukraine. I'll be honest. I like mm. most people. I got it wrong. I, absolutely. And it ripped open the scene between East and West, uh, in my view. You, you've, you've seen growing geopolitical tensions for, for years now between East and West, but they've been contained um, for the most part. Um, you, you, it was clear you had authoritarian leaders, um, Vladimir Putin being one, uh, Erd President Erdogan in, in uh, Turkey, um, and Xi Jinping in, in uh, China, for example, among others. Um, and, you know, but it, it still seemed like this overall, we were, we were getting along okay enough. I mean, look, things were not great, but uh, it didn't seem like we were heading for this new Cold War. But that's what we've got. We've got a new Cold War, effectively. And mm. um, the, this is why I, I just think you've got to look at this as a one single geopolitical jigsaw puzzle. Mm. The Indo, what happens in the Indo-Pacific is directly related to what's happening now in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, it's just changed the way that Western policymakers in particular look at what's happening in, in, in Asia. Um, and uh, it's just decreased any tolerance level. I think. Um, so there's just very little tolerance of New Zealand to go and do its own thing. Now um, you're meant to get in line and pick a side and pick the Western side and back the West. Um, and there's, there's just so much talk at the moment now about uh, Taiwan and mm. about uh, you know what China uh, uh, may or may not do. Um, there wasn't that talk, uh, if you go back potential for a Chinese invasion, but it, it wasn't like it is now, uh, where it comes up as a matter of routine. Mm. Uh, and you saw that the way it came up with Joe Biden last week when he was asked about defending Taiwan. And um, yeah, it's just really a big, a big thing, top of mind. So um, I guess, yeah, to go back to your, your question about Sweden and Finland, uh, I think there are a lot of parallels with New Zealand um, here. I think that uh, New Zealand could be pushed in uh, as well uh, mm. to joining an alliance. I think that 
uh, as I said to you earlier, quad plus could be a real reality. Mm. I think it's unlikely that New Zealand reactivates uh, ANZUS. Um, I mean, New Zealand is still formally part of it. It's just that the US suspended its obligations to mm. New Zealand. It could be restored very quickly, but I think that would only happen uh, you know, if there was more of a direct threat, you know, mm. if that invasion of Taiwan did happen, which we all hope it's hope it, uh, it does not. You know? right. But if it did happen, if the worst came to pass, then yeah, I think New Zealand would join ANZUS again pretty quickly. But in the short, you know, failing that, you know, New Zealand could definitely be pushed into Quad Plus, uh, something along those lines um, uh, that could happen. I, I just think, though, well, we should not see all of this conflict as an inevitable. And at the moment, uh, my criticism of Western policymakers and commentators generally is to sort of see all this tension as just inevitable and mm. something that, you know, will go on uh, and get worse and worse. I look, I think there's a chance of that, but I, I think if we get active uh, and engage and talk, um, then we can dial these tensions down and it will require compromise. Uh, you know, it will require both sides to uh, give up some of their position. Mm. Um, but that's what negotiating is about. And um, unfortunately, there's just not much room at the moment. There's, there's very little tolerance of that idea of negotiating, talking, engaging, and giving up something uh, uh, on, on both sides. There's, mm. there's much more of an appetite for, no, we are going to win completely. And, and you're seeing that attitude in, with Ukraine at the moment. The West is putting in you know, billions, literally billions of dollars in, in arms, 40 billion US dollars uh, in arms. Uh, well, it's, it's not just military aid, but that's a good part of it. Um, huge amounts of military aid is going into Ukraine to try and defeat Russia totally. Mm. Um, and the negotiated approach, the peace talks, have fallen by the wayside. Um, I think that's a shame. I think, you know, you should negotiate um, in, some, in some form. And I, I, I say that, and I know that it's not a popular view because everyone sees what's happening and they say, look, you can't, uh, you can't negotiate with Vladimir Putin. He's, he's, he's evil um, and he's like Hitler and so forth and it's appeasement. Uh, I, I just think, you know, he's not Hitler. This is not World War II, but it will become like that um, perhaps if, if we don't uh, engage a bit more. That's right. Um, I think there's still time. There's still time to stop a very bad situation from getting even worse. Mm. Uh, every day that this war goes on, People are dying. Civilians are dying. That's right. um, soldiers are dying. Uh, if you had a ceasefire, that would stop, right? Um, so I would prefer to go for the ceasefire route. Personally, mm. uh, I would prefer to go for peace now and work out differences. Mm. I would have preferred that we had done that even earlier. Before the war started, I prefer that we had had even more committed engagement and, and talks. Look, there's fault on on. Vladimir Putin's side, he was offered off ramps. He didn't take them um, before mm. the war. So I'm not an apologist for Vladimir Putin um, here at all. But I think, you know, at some point you have to kind of uh, engage and uh, because the alternative to en engagement is war, ultimately. Mm. If you don't want war, you've got to engage. I, I mean, I, I just think, you know, what alternatives are there? So in terms of what happens in the Indo-Pacific, I, I think it would be more fruitful um, for New Zealand to mm. to lead kind of this engagement approach, but it wouldn't be an easy thing to do. Mm. And the easier option for New Zealand at the moment is to join the West, um, join the Western club, uh, join that Western embrace, 
uh, it's popular. New Zealanders like it, um, even though they can see that it, maybe it's uh, a problem with our trade, but they still culturally, um, you know, socially, they, they prefer uh, to be alongside the West. I get that. Um, it's still, though, I, I think we need to think very carefully about uh, giving up that independent foreign policy mm. that was built over a period of about three decades. It wasn't something that we've just uh, done overnight. It took a lot of time um, uh, to build that approach. Um, and really, it goes back even uh, earlier to that, to the 1970s, when the United Kingdom entered the European Economic Community mm. and New Zealand didn't lost its trade access into the United Kingdom. So that was the first... Uh, instalment and New Zealand began to look for new markets, then it really increased from the 1980s onwards uh, right. and then with the, the Cold War, right. end of the Cold War. Well, Jeffrey, I know you're very busy. I have one more question before letting you go. Now, we know that right now we are in the season of graduation, particularly in the US. Now, Jacinda Arden, that she was invited to one of the prestigious universities, which is Harvard University, as the commencement speaker. Now, again, quickly, that during the commencement address, not only that she shared this mutual benefits between U.S. and, uh, and, and New Zealand, you know, in terms of this political or cultural engagement, but meanwhile, that she talked extensively regarding the word democracy. And meanwhile, you are one of the experts on democracy project. So, can you briefly share with us how significant it is for Jacinda Ardern to promote or to advocate for this democratic system in the land of U.S.? And meanwhile, if we look at this domestic policy in terms of gun control, abortion debate, everything social changes are taking place. Again, how significant it is for Jacinda as a commencement speaker to address the concept of democracy in the U.S. today? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Will. Uh, New Zealand, it, it's really funny to say this because New Zealand's a young country, um, but it's actually one of the world's oldest unbroken democracies, which is, it seems like a, a contradiction in terms. Um, but uh, New Zealand really had an unbroken uh, system of democracy uh, since it was uh, founded. Uh, the modern founding of New Zealand really goes back to, to 1840. And New Zealand has had democracy uh, for pretty much all of that period. Mm. Um, and in New Zealand was the first country to give the right to vote to women, uh, for example, back in 1893. Uh, and uh, the Indigenous people of New Zealand, uh, the Maori, also received the right to vote at a very early stage. Um, Compared certainly compared with uh, similar countries like uh, Australia, where Indigenous people received the right to vote much, much later. So um, New Zealand has got a very proud uh, democratic tradition, like the United States. Um, and so I think that, that is, again, one of these bonds that goes back uh, why um, you know, New Zealanders feel very comfortable with Americans. I think the strong democratic uh, traditions in both countries. Um and yes, I, I think Jacinda Ardern, in terms of those issues you mentioned, uh, gun control, abortion rights, uh, and so forth, I think she's very, very careful. Uh, she does not want to tell the US what to do. Mm. Jacinda Ardern is a very popular New Zealand Prime Minister, 
she's very well known internationally, which is very unusual. Uh, look, you go back, I, I, I challenge your listeners to think of any other New Zealand prime ministers and name them. You probably can't without mm. cheating and Googling them. Um, but Jacinda Ardern really has, has established a really uh, high profile for herself um, for, for a range of reasons. But um, she uh, she's very careful, though, uh, the way she uses that profile, um, it would be easy to, uh, I think, make some gaffes mm. on a on a foreign trip. Uh, and one of those gaffes is telling another country what to do domestically. And so she's been very careful when she's been asked about gun control. And you've seen, obviously, some bad, uh, very bad mass shootings in, That's in right. the US in the last couple of weeks. She's been very careful to say, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm, I'm going to talk about what we do in New Zealand because in New Zealand there was a very bad uh, shooting, of course, the mm. terrorist attack in Christchurch in March 2019. So she talks about that experience and what New Zealand did after that attack to try and stop any further attacks. So New Zealand introduced much tighter gun laws after that. But she's very, very careful I think, to centre it back on New Zealand. Mm. And uh, so she went on The Late Show as well with Stephen Colbert. That's right. She was asked about gun control in that interview. That was, I think, the day after the uh, the, the massacre in Uvalde. So um, she was very careful to say, look, I could just talk about our experience and what we did. So she she had a, um, a very, very successful trip. Uh, well, to the US, uh, I don't think you can point to a single... Uh, a single gaffe uh, mm. of any kind, uh, a single time where she put her foot wrong. Um, and that's quite an achievement uh, for quite a big foreign trip. Uh, she's very at home on the international stage, very comfortable in that environment. Um, and, and that's a remarkable, remarkable achievement for a New Zealand prime minister. And it does provide opportunities for New Zealand. Um, I think Jacinda Ardern could pretty much go to any world mm. leader and get a meeting. And uh, I think Joe Biden was very keen to meet Jacinda Ardern. And that's completely different from the experience of New Zealand prime ministers of the past who kind of have to beg usually for a meeting with the US president or mm. with any world leader uh, because New Zealand traditionally is just not that important. But New Zealand now is the centre of attention in the Indo-Pacific because all eyes are at the moment uh, are on the Indo-Pacific. So New Zealand is, is the US's eyes and ears at the moment uh, in a way in the Indo-Pacific and um, the U.S. suddenly needs New Zealand just as much as New Zealand needs the U.S., and that's not been the case uh, previously. That's uh, right. New Zealand was pretty much irrelevant to the U.S. Uh, from the 1980s onwards mm. after that dispute with ANZUS. And even before that, well, let's be honest, even when ANZUS was fully in place, I don't think New Zealand was terribly important to mm. U.S. foreign policy makers, but it is now. So that's the big, uh, yeah, that's the big theme at the moment. Very good. Well, Jeffrey Miller is the Democracy Project's international analyst and writes on current New Zealand foreign policy and related geopolitical issues. He has lived in Germany and the Middle East. Again, Jeffrey, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you regarding the foreign policy between US and New Zealand and New Zealand and China. And we'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to monitor and watch the progress among those countries within the international community. 